Art historian, museum director, and journalist Helen Harrison specializes in modern American art. She received her A.B. in studio art from Adelphi University and her M.A. in art history from Case Western Reserve University, where her research focused on the New Deal federal art patronage programs. She also studied sculpture at the Brooklyn Museum Art School, where she held a Max Beckman Memorial Scholarship and at Hornsey College of Art in London. In 1990, after serving as curator of the Parish Art Museum in Southampton, New York, director of the Public Art Preservation Committee in Manhattan, and curator of Guildhall Museum in East Hampton, she became the director of the Pollock Krasner House and Study Center, a National Historic Landmark Museum and Research Collection in East Hampton that is administered by the Stony Brook Foundation. She has lectured widely on modern American art, and for five years, her visual art commentaries, Art Waves, were heard on WLIU 88.3 FM, Long Island's NPR affiliate. From 1976 to 2006, she wrote art reviews and feature articles for the Long Island section of the New York Times. She has also written many exhibition catalogs and contributed to several multi-author publications, including From Impressionism to Abstract Expressionism, Elaine de Kooning, and Remembering the Future, the New York World's Fair from 1939 to 1964. She lives in Sag Harbor, New York, with her husband, the painter Roy Nicholson. Helen Harrison, welcome to the creative process. So we're, we're standing in uh, the Pollock Krasner House. Could you mm -hmm. just tell me how long you've been associated and you know your how you came to mm -hmm. to be director uh, well I've been here since 1990 I'm not the founding director the museum opened in 1988 there was someone here before me who actually started it and set it up but she was part-time and as far as I'm concerned she did an excellent job but she didn't want to take it as a full-time job so I was the curator of the local museum Guild Hall at the time and I knew Meg Perlman, who was my predecessor and who uh, was uh, really responsible for getting the place up and running. And then when she decided to leave, I applied for the job, and here I am. Wonderful. Oh. We were working also in collaboration with Guildhall, so mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, it's a wonderful community you have here. I mean, at the time that uh, Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner decided to, to come out here to Springs, East Hampton, um, that I guess there had already been sort of a tradition of an arts colony, but it was all, you know, tell, tell us a little well, bit about that Well, it was not history. here. Yeah. It was not in this neighborhood. It was uh -huh. down in the main ta part of town, in the village of, of East Hampton. Uh, the Moran family, Thomas and Mary Moran, were the first artists to move here and build a home. That was in 1884. But there already had been artists visiting earlier. So it was really the railroad that enabled them to come out from the city. There were a few indigenous artists too, people who had been born here and worked as uh, itinerant portrait painters or landscape painters. But the real incursion came in the late 1870s because the railroad went as far as Bridgehampton. Then they would get into buckboards or stagecoaches or wagons and come out to the boarding houses out here. And they liked the picturesque, rural community for the, uh, the subject matter, and then they would do their paintings or sketches here, take them back to their New York studios, finish them up, and exhibit them, and that helped to put the local landscape on the map, and then pretty soon 
artists started coming out and either renting homes or going to boarding houses. And in 1884, the Morans built what they called the studio, which was for him and for her. They were another artist couple who worked, uh, she was an etcher, and he was the famous painter of the Yellowstone. So he would take his Yellowstone sketches from all the way out west and work them up in his East Hampton studio and then sell them to people in the city. So it really was a retreat for many of these artists and not so much a full-time residence, but they also had their New York studios. But by the time Jackson and Lee came along in 1945, they moved out here permanently, full-time. They gave up their apartment in Manhattan and uh, this became their year-round place. When they moved here, they were renting the house. It was built in 1879, and it was, we have a little photograph of it on the wall there that shows you what it looked like. It was pretty much a fixer-upper. It had no uh, running water, no plumbing, and uh, no central heating. That didn't come until a few years later. So they had to kind of camp out at first, because they gave up their Greenwich Village of tenement apartment entirely. That was where they'd been living on East 8th Street. Uh, when first they moved in together in 1942 and then they married in 45 and a couple of weeks later they moved out here. This is almost the anniversary of their moving here, no November 5th. So they had uh, just their paint painting materials, uh, a few records, books and things like that, but very little furniture and uh, didn't know a soul in the neighborhood. It was really quite isolated. But it wasn't that far from New York City. So it was convenient for them to go back and forth. They could get into town if they needed to. It wasn't as remote as, say, Woodstock or Provincetown, which were the other big art communities at the time outside of New York. And their move here, I didn't, was that funded by Peggy Guggenheim? Yes, actually. She lent them the down payment for the house. They wanted to buy it. They didn't want to just rent. They wanted to move here and, and live here full time. So they decided to buy the place and they had to convince Peggy that it was a good investment. And it wasn't an easy sell. She was no pushover. But in uh, the spring of 46, she agreed to lend them $2,000 for the down payment. And then they got a mortgage for 3,000. So they paid $5,000 for the house and the other buildings on the property. And at the time, it was about an acre and a quarter of land but they eventually had five acres altogether. Yeah, it's, she was so prescient in terms of, you know, just the history of mm -hmm. the artists that she um, supported. Yes. Uh, I just, uh, it's amazing. And, and, and then visiting her place, just this off to topic, but in Venice. Yeah, oh, well, you can see yeah. the collection and, yeah. and how marvelous it is. And of course, she took a real chance on Pollock because, you know, these other artists she was collecting, these were the A-list. Yeah. You know, the, just the top surrealist and abstract painters in Europe. And the American artists were not taken seriously, and even the ones who did have a reputation. And Pollock was completely unknown. And he was a bit volatile, too. Yes, there was it. that. Yes. But Lee was trying to keep him under control. Yeah. One of the reasons for moving out here was to get him out of the city. Right. So he would be, he was under a lot of pressure there. Mm -hmm. And he would be less... Um, he called it wear and tear, but what it really was was going out with his drinking buddies and not yeah. getting down to work. Because Peggy was paying him an allowance, mm -hmm. a monthly stipend, and she had commissioned a mural from him for her townhouse yeah. and was giving him solo exhibitions every year mm -hmm. from 1943 on. So yeah. it really was important for him to stay on track, but it was just very difficult for him in, in that 
environment where all of his drinking buddies were there and of course all of the other artists who were striving to make reputations so it was very competitive yeah I think so and then we know also that he struggled with depression as well yes. and that can't have been you know self-medicating or whatever right we, we realize now but mm -hmm. yeah well, I think even then, he yeah. realized himself that it was bad for him, mm -hmm. but he really wasn't able to find any treatment that was successful until he moved out here. Yeah. And then he had a local doctor, just a general practitioner, not a psychiatrist right. or anything, mm -hmm. or a specialist, and evidently he trusted him. He put him on a little medication. He talked turkey to him, according to Jackson. He said he could believe him, and he told him that if he kept drinking, he was going to kill himself and that he really needed to stop, and apparently Jackson agreed with him. And for two years, he went on the wagon. Then, quite ironically, that doctor was killed in a one-car crash, not by anybody else. He went off the road and had evidently a brain hemorrhage and, and died. And it was uh, just a few months before Jackson went back to drinking, so it was sad that he was not able to go back for treatment with the one person who seemed to have success with him. Whether it would have lasted or not, of course, is can't yeah, say. Some people have, he did seem to have that self-destructive, mm -hmm. um, ten those tendencies. Um, well, but he was very productive yes. here while he was here, the beautiful environment mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. calm, and I think, you know, Lee as well. Yeah. Um, if you want to maybe walk through the house and we can discuss, you know, sure. some, some of that work and his early life, mm -hmm. and Lee's as well, you know, as a partner. Well, what you're seeing here uh, is essentially the way Lee left it in 1984 when she died. She was here for 28 years after his death, although she also had an apartment in New York. But the furnishings, most of the furnishings came in during the 60s and 70s when she was living here alone, except for the two beautiful pieces we have in the kitchen, this oak sideboard from Spain and an English, what they call a court cupboard, another piece from the late 17th or early 18th century. And these two pieces were given to them by friends not long after they moved in. And we even have a photograph from the 50s that shows the cupboard in place. We still have the chairs that are around the table, but some of the other furniture is no longer here. When they moved here, the downstairs was four rooms. And as you see it now, it's all opened up so that it's more of a loft-like space. And they did that over time so that they could exhibit their artwork mm -hmm. and also so they could entertain. They were very right. sociable. They really liked having people come out from the city. They liked to have their friends over for dinner. Right. And it was much more convivial if you have an open floor plan like this, not a wall between the kitchen and the rest of the house. Right. So that was done by 1949. And then they also, uh, what they really wanted to do was to, to build a little community here. They wanted their friends to come and buy places and settle here, although most of the ones who did come were part-timers. But a few of them did live here year-round. And Willem de Kooning eventually moved here year-round. We also, they had Ibram Lassau down the road. They had Conrad Marcarelli uh, up the street, a couple of houses. Uh, they had a lot of friends who would visit from the city and then think, oh, you know, this, this is pretty nice and maybe we could get a fixer-up or two. Yeah. So then Springs became the community, and with Jackson and Lee as the magnets who attracted mm -hmm. these people. So there were many very interesting dinner parties here <laughs> during the 40s and 50s, but it wasn't until 1949 that they got the full plumbing and central heating. 
because that year Pollock had a very successful exhibition. After Peggy Guggenheim went back to Europe in 1947, he was represented by Betty Parsons, and she gave him the shows that really made him famous. She wasn't very good at marketing the work, but she was very devoted to the avant-garde, and she was a painter herself. It's interesting that the strong women in his life mm -hmm. uh, were really, I think, a little, I understand, I don't know as much about their history, but I understand that the you know, in, in a way, sacrifice her, her, I don't want to say development, but... Not her development, no, but her, her career. Her career, yeah. Yeah, she was painting the whole time. Yes. She was exhibiting. Oh, an amazing yeah. work, too. I mean, if they weren't together, I mm -hmm. mean, she would, she, you know, she's an important figure in her own right. Well, they both came up during the 1930s. Uh, he mm -hmm. went to art school. He went to the Art Students League and studied with Thomas Hart Benton. Yeah. And then he went to a couple of the settlement house uh, free art classes, and he apprenticed for a while with a stone carver. But he finished art school in the depths of the Great Depression, as did Lee. She went to the Cooper Union and the National Academy of Design. Mm -hmm. And uh, fortunately for them, the WPA came along, the Federal oh, Art Project. So important to many artists. Oh my gosh, the whole yeah. generation was saved from starvation practically. Mm -hmm. But the the great thing about it. In addition to them being able to earn a living wage, they were free from commercial pressure. So they were able to develop artistically without having to worry about marketing their work. Mm -hmm. So they didn't need dealers. They didn't yeah. need collectors. They didn't need critics. They had and Uncle Sam. <laughs> and that's yeah, it's, you know, it's great. It puts you in touch with, you know, I think that it's a distraction for many, a necessity of a distraction mm -hmm. of thinking about the commercial, who's going to buy this? Yes. This? And the, so much about being an artist is just be, being able to work on a daily basis. It's like mm -hmm. a repertory, mm -hmm. and you have your community, and that is so nourishing. And so to have that free from worry. Yes. Well, you know, that's so important to nice development. In her will, Lee made provision to set up a foundation to give grants to artists. It's very generous. It's still going. Back yes. How many years? Oh, 30, so some 35 years. years. And yeah. well, we call it Lee's private WPA <laughs> yeah, because that's, that's nice. exactly what it's intended to do: mm -hmm. is to give artists time to do their work without worrying about the money. Mm -hmm. and, and are they connected to the house, or you? I, we're I, separate. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we belong to Stony Brook, mm -hmm. which was done deliberately in her will. Mm -hmm. She wanted to separate the two functions, but they have been very generous to us. Yeah. So we do. We, we're very. You know, we, we have. We're, we're joined at the hip, shall we say? Mm -hmm. But they do have. You know, a primary function of their uh, philanthropy is helping individual artists. It's, it's so lovely when artists do that. I'm well, the whole thing it. about the creative process is that it takes time. It's not, you know, people think of Pollock as someone who just blurted out these drippy images and then went on and blurted out another one. You know. It's not like that at all. It's very time-consuming because there's a great deal of concentration involved and then contemplation. So after the first campaign is completed, you have to step back, you have to maybe hang it up on the wall, maybe put it down on the floor, leave it there, on, and think about it, and, and decide what you're going to do next. And then if it doesn't work, you've got to 
you've got to make it work. It's not just what you see, it's all the decisions. The decisions yeah. that are, in, and now in Pollock and Krasner's case, it may be a very spontaneous process. Yeah, but it's Very still, intuitive, yeah. but it's still very time-consuming. And energy, you and can see the energy in the canvas. Well, that's yeah. it. You know, it's, he said it himself, it's energy and motion made visible. Yeah. So these are things that come spontaneously from his own feelings, but they're based on, first of all, observation, the natural world around him, all the forces of nature that were so influential, and then processing that and figuring out how to create a visual language that expresses those feelings. Yeah. And some of those feelings can be very complicated. Yeah. And the, uh, the technique, the, the, the means of expression, is dictated by what those feelings are. It's not the other way around. See, people think that, oh, he used the liquid material and then, you know, he just sort of danced around and that kind of gave him mm. ideas. No. Because we've seen the imitations and they are imitations. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they don't have the energy coiled yeah. up. Well, it's also yeah. very distinctive mark making, I mean, mm -hmm. sort of like handwriting. Yes. The way everyone has a distinctive penmanship, Pollock mm -hmm. did too, mm -hmm. and so did Krasner. You can tell, you can differentiate his marks from hers and his marks from a similar technique used by someone else. Mm -hmm. It's not the technique itself that's so important, it's what you do with it that counts. Yeah, and, how, and the feelings that you have as you do it and the feelings that you communicate to others. I think that's why a lot of people analogize his work to uh, modern jazz. Yes, because there is a kind of uh, the same kind of improvisational feeling about it, but the difference for me is that usually now not necessarily like with Ornette Coleman and free jazz, but with most jazz, there's a tune that you start off with, right. and then from that tune you extrapolate, you improvise, and then you come back and wrap it up with the tune. If you listen to, you know, Duke Ellington or someone like that, there is definitely a melody, and then it then the different members of the band improvise, and then they come back and wrap it up. But in Pollock's case, he started with nothing. Yeah, It's a true. blank canvas. Mm -hmm. So he had to create the structure mm -hmm. and then elaborate on it. And it, you know that is very challenging because what if you don't have an idea? Mm -hmm. But he was able to do that, I think in part because of what Thomas Hart Benton had taught him. <laughs> it seems like Benton would be the last person who because you would... Because he was figurative. Yeah, as, exactly. As the crime and the depression and all that. Well, and he was also, a lot of his, his uh, teaching method was based on the old masters. He had them study the old masters. There are sketchbooks full of Pollock's drawings from Raphael and Tintoretto and El Greco yeah. and Rubens. But he was teaching him how to build a picture, the physical structure of, of, of painting and making a composition and building the forms and that sort of thing. But he also taught him to work from his experience. I'm just looking, you know, um, Jackson Pollock's rural origins, mm -hmm. the opposite of Lee Krasner in Brooklyn. Right. I don't know what yeah. it was like at the time, but I'm just, we're looking now at a, a birdhouse that yes. he made. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just wondering, to what extent do you feel um, his upbringing in Wyoming or going out um, surveying with his father in the Grand Canyon and how did that flow into his work? I mean can we see those resonances 
um, you know, the sense of space, or how do you feel? Yeah, I think, visible? well, certainly the, the sensitivity to, to the landscape. I mean, he didn't grow up in Wyoming. The family yeah. left there before he was a year old, but he moved around the Southwest oh, yes. with them, Arizona and California. Arizona. But uh, he certainly felt an affection or a feeling, I guess, for the West and the open spaces. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't so much in terms of subject matter. It was really more in terms of the, the environment acting on him. And he yeah. said, out here, the Atlantic Ocean gives you that. Right. So being by the ocean, I think, was something that he, he was very, uh, he enjoyed that environment. Well, the, both of their work, you know, touching on, you know, deep resonances mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. what, you, what you add to the story. Well, I think that's the, one of the challenges for people interpreting the work for themselves is that they, they tend to think that there ought to be a specific way of reading it or a specific meaning to it, when in fact there really isn't. It's more what's up to you. And Pollock was very insistent on that point. He said you should look passively. You shouldn't, you know, what you see, was it Jasper Johns famously said, what you see is what you see. Mm -hmm. And that's true, whether it's a geometric work or a gestural work because mm -hmm. these works are not meant to illustrate or, or narrate any particular story. It's what you take to it, mm -hmm. and then what you can get from it. And mm -hmm. Pollock was quite sanguine about that. You know, if you don't get anything from it, well, you, know, you don't, that's all. Mm -hmm. But just look at it and see what it means to you. So it's not a cut and dried narrative the way you would have in an illustrational work, and it certainly isn't intended to make you think or feel a certain way. Hmm. And it, when children look at it, of course, they are much more uh, open to all different interpretations. Hmm. And that's kind of fun when we have the kids here and they, we show them a, a rep well, we, don't, we only have one Pollock painting, so we have to show them reproductions. But you say, you know, what does it make you think? What hmm. do you feel when you look at it? And they could have all kinds of different answers. It's kind of wonderful. But um, here in the house is yeah, where they well, worked at first. Oh, okay. So because good. they didn't own the house, they had to rent it at first. Yeah. So they worked in here, but they always had the idea that the barn would become Jackson's studio. So when they did that uh, renovation in, in the summer of 1946, then he started working there, and Lee took over the original studio, which is upstairs. Right. But this room, this is where Lee worked at mm -hmm. first, here in the living room. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is what would have been the back parlor back mm -hmm. in those days. And the one piece of art that we did inherit is this sculpture by her nephew, Ronald oh. Stein. He did that for a show at Guild Hall back in 1968. It was interesting, just going back there, we were talking about multiple interpretations, and I find it interesting the jazz, definitely the jazz. You can see, you know, uh, I also, I, because of the time when Jackson Pollock was painting, I think that there's been comparisons to atomic explosions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then that we see now, uh, although he wasn't scientific, mm -hmm. but I see comparisons made to uh, fractals, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that his, you know, at a certain level of magnification, right. some of those patterns in nature would repeat themselves like right. his painting. And, and, and so it is so fascinating. And I guess that's, for me, what the, the beauty of art mm. is it frees us, it allows us these multiple interpretations. Right. And uh, 
you know, just to find out, get in touch with our own creativity. Right. No, of yeah. course, it's not the only way to create. I've, mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with figurative art, after yeah. all. And when we interpret Pollock's work for visitors or for students, we, we don't try to sell it to them. You know, we mm -hmm. don't say, this is the way it should be and the other stuff isn't so good. This is just a different way of, of approaching creativity. But the idea that it has a kind of musical cadence to it, of course. You can see, you can easily make that analogy. Yeah. And, and dance, I yeah, see that this is choreographic. That's what dance well, feels. his movements were yeah. choreographic, yeah. but they were they were improvisational. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the film of him at work, you can see that there is a definite, rhythmical, repeated movement that establishes a, a compositional framework, and which he then elaborates on. Yeah. Now he did not listen to music while he painted. That's interesting. That a lot of people think that he sort of danced around to jazz or whatever, but no, he did not. Mm -hmm. There was no record player or radio in the studio. It had no yeah. electricity, but it didn't even have a crank up Victrola. Right. Yeah, the Life magazine is, is a very important turning point in Pollock's career because up to that point, he really wasn't well known. He didn't have the kind of exposure uh, Thomas Hart Benton, for example, was on the cover of Time magazine, yeah. the first artist ever. Yeah. So this was uh, just a, uh, a revelation. It had a circulation of five million. Oh, yeah. And so it was days, huge yeah. coverage. And it was from the show. This, was, this came out in August, and then he would typically have a show November, December. And his show that winter practically sold out. If you just read that there. Yeah, is he says. the greatest living painter in the United States? Well, <laughs> the headline, of course, is a little tongue-in-cheek, mm -hmm. but uh, they got over 500 letters to the editor in response to this article. Right. It was the most of any article that ran that year, mm -hmm. including the Berlin Airlift. Wow. So this was obviously touched a nerve, mm -hmm. and 495 of them answered the question, no. <laughs> but the few but who did, yeah. well, it was provocative, yeah. and actually, the woman who researched it, she was not the writer. The writer was a man named George Hunt, who, they didn't sign the articles in those days, but oh, a woman named Dorothy Cyberlin, who later became the art editor of Life, was just out of college, and she was the researcher on it. She's the one who interviewed Pollock for the, the, the jump piece. Well, this, is, this is the main spread, and then there's a jump on the next page that has a little blurb with his quotes in it. But um, she said that you know, he, was, he was not particularly articulate. Mm -hmm. Lee answered a lot of the questions for him. And then they took quite a few uh, little snippets out of an article that he had written for Possibilities magazine in 1947-48. Mm -hmm. And that was the way they kind of got his words into it. I see, but he, but for someone who's not articulate, because the same has been said for other, you know, great artists of the twentieth century, like Picasso. They say, mm -hmm. and you see films of him where he's kind of childlike or whatever. Mm -hmm. But when he was poignant, and when Jackson Pollock was poignant, I mm -hmm. mean, I'm assuming they're his words, mm -hmm. saying things like, you know, do, do you paint for nature? I am nature. <laughs> I, I, I'm guessing that's well. Lee apocryphal. said that he said that, oh, okay. and I, I will believe her. Yeah. Now, I actually, I wrote so a paper once on yeah. what he really did say and what he didn't, uh, because there are some uh, drafts of things mm -hmm. that have been published that are in his own handwriting. Mm -hmm. You can see his crossings out and his corrections, sure. and you can tell that you know he was working on that himself. 
And then there are other things where people obviously are putting words into his mouth. Mm -hmm. But it's not like he couldn't talk about art. He just wasn't doing it formally. Yeah. According to his friends, they would have wonderful discussions about sure. art, historical art as well as contemporary art. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't as if he didn't know what he was talking about or didn't want to talk about it, but he didn't necessarily want to go on the record. Mm. And also, yeah, he had, seen, had a great um, admiration historically. You talk about Benton, you talk about, well, then also as he was growing up, um, well, Native, Native American, American yeah. art and, you know, that and, and Mexican mm -hmm, real painters. Mm -hmm, and Actually, you see that in the small painting that we have, the one and only Pollock that we own, which is over the cupboard here in the kitchen. This painting was done in the late 30s in his New York City studio. And the reason we have it is because the widow of the man to whom it was given in payment for a service gave it back to us. I think we got it, actually got it in 2000. And she was married to a guy who was an attorney named Jerry Weinstock. And they had a summer place across the street. And they got friendly, a young couple. And Jackson, uh, in 1950, when he went back to drinking and fell off the wagon, I think Lee decided that he needed to make a will. Oh, right. So they asked Jerry Weinstock if he would write the will, and mm -hmm. he did. And this is the painting that they chose in payment for that service. Mm -hmm. And it shows you the influence of the Native American art with the pictographic figures. There's a ritual scene of some kind. It doesn't have a formal title, but you can see there's something going on there. Very expressionistic, which is the Orozco influence. And then, of course, Picasso. See where the moon is there? And yeah. there's a sort of screaming horse's head, very stylized with oh, the wow, bared teeth, straight out of Guernica. Oh, yeah. So these are influences that he was under in the, in the late 30s that were moving him in a more subjective and expressionistic direction, but still using pictographic imagery because he felt that Native American art had a spiritual dimension. It wasn't just illustrative. It, it, it was symbolic, of course, it had meaning, but it had something beyond, beyond literal meaning. And he, according to his friend Reuben Kadish, they used to go up to the yeah. Museum of the American Indian as often as they went to MoMA. So yeah. it was a real uh, confluence of all these influences coming together that he was synthesizing in a painting like this. And this is the sort of thing that Lee would have seen when she first went to his studio. She saw the painting called Birth, which is based a lot on Indian masks. And that was what the painting that was put into the exhibition that she was also in. And because her work looked like that. Yeah. So the, her painting for that show would have been a neo-cubist picture similar to this. Although this is not actually a, a Krasner painting, it's a movie prop. Right, but it's done after. It's a copy started. of a specific painting, and they made over 150 copies for the film because they couldn't use the real thing. I was going to ask you, what did you? What were your impressions of the film? I mean, what were your feelings about faithfulness, or what did you feel? Well, it wasn't so much accurate as authentic. Right. You know, they tried to capture the authentic feeling and. They, they had to compress things. They had to you know, do certain things to make a two-hour movie. They didn't go back into the history of you know, where they came from or anything. They just kind of happened in 1941, and well, that's fine. But uh, I think Ed Harris did an amazing job of actually 
presenting himself as an artist because he's not. He's not a professional artist. I mean, some actors are, but he was not. But he trained very hard for the role and filming it here on location, he himself said he felt it really helped him to get into the character, not just of Pollock as a person, but of Pollock as a painter. But a lot of paint, uh, films about painters or sculptors, uh, the art really gets shortchanged. Yeah. And you know, you kind of you kind of wince when they step up to the easel. But in this case, I think he really nailed it. Mm. And the film is about them being artists, not just about them being a dysfunctional couple or the romance or the violence or anything like that. It's really about their lives as artists. And that I thought is a really strong element of the film. Mm. And they 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 both were, you know, excellent acting. Yeah. But it's just a kind of um uh, a slice of their life. Mm -hmm. It's a very limited period. It starts in 41 and it ends with his death in 56. So mm -hmm. it didn't go into the past history and it didn't go into Lee's life after Jackson. But for what it, for what it did, I think it really did an excellent job. Will we go out to the studio then? Yes. Okay. Fantastic. But I do want to show you a couple of oh, other yeah, things me. like the original studio. You see it's a small room. It was Jackson's first and then Lee. And this was, uh, I guess, in a way, the advantage of it, first of all, it has a north window. And right. uh, art artists like that because it's a nice indirect light all day. Mm -hmm. But it also has a beautiful view of Akabana Creek. And it has a door. They right. both like privacy to work in. And unfortunately, where Lee was downstairs was kind of in traffic, but it was mm -hmm. near the stove. So <laughs> that was right. a big advantage. But this room, Paula could close the door and have privacy if he wanted. And the first series of works he did in here, uh, he called the Akabana Creek series. Right. And that's what you're seeing outside the window, the little river that runs behind the house. And they're not landscape paintings, but they do have a lightness and a, a brightness that he didn't get in the city. And it's still pictographic imagery and symbolic content, but really not... Um, not any different in uh, subject, if you like, but it's just the way it's treated. Then he started doing things that were much more all over abstractions. And he started doing those in here. And in fact, you'll see some coming up on the kiosk. The, um, we have this uh, electronic image bank, and there's one of the uh, Akabana Creek paintings. Okay, I see it's the trend, I see it before the transition. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a quite a large painting. It's actually yeah. seven feet across, and it's in Chicago. But he would, that's, according to Lee, that was the first one he painted on the floor. It's called The Key, and that's yeah. another one. Now, here's one of the all-over paintings, which is in MoMA. It's up at the moment, yeah, and cool. it is actually, I took a close look at it the other day. It's a conventional painting underneath, and then he added impasto over the top. So yeah. it's a, two layers. And that's quite common with him, that there are mm -hmm. multiple layers. Yeah, the texture is so Yeah, a lot of texture. That one in particular, very kind of buttery impasto. Mm -hmm. And then Lee took over this space, and she started doing her little image paintings in here. Mm -hmm. and so her size was really dictated by the size of the room. Some too, of them yeah. are quite big. Some of them, she's got some seven-footers that she mm -hmm. did in here. That's but amazing. It wow. was really... Um, uh, the, most of these are relatively small. That's, that one's 20 by 23. So there is a kind of 
restriction, mm-hmm. and also as to how many she could store in here at any given time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she did worked on that series for about five years. Then she uh, started on something quite different. She used to have what she called breaks, so she would go off in a whole other direction. Mm-hmm. And then she would uh, make collages out of things that she was uh, unsatisfied with. She would tear them up or cut them up and make collages out of them. So the body of her work is kind of small because she constantly recycled her things. Mm-hmm. I think it seems like she was tough on herself too. Very tough. She was very critical, very self-critical, but she had a great eye. So she mm-hmm. really knew when it was working and when it wasn't. And an eye for his work too. I oh mean, yeah. He so really valued her. Opinion. He trusted her, her judgment. They didn't, according to her, they didn't give each other what we would think of as critiques, the way they do in art school. Like, mm-hmm. Your composition is wrong, you've got to alter this, you've got to change that color, you've got to do this, that, or the other specific thing. It was more about it's working, stick with it, or do another one and come back to it later. You know, that kind of encouragement without specific um, criticism. Now, there's a picture of one of the collages where she was doing these in the late 54, 55, and she had an exhibition of them at the Stable Gallery in New York, and it was very well received. Unfortunately, Pollock wasn't painting anymore, so mm. it was not good for the relationship. Right, so and a part of her was having to look after him emotionally, and I guess oh, that's yeah. why she went to Europe. I don't want to skip too far ahead of her story. <laughs> but, um, I mean, her work is so fascinating, too, and I don't know what, you know, where it diverges it's very it's it's unique and well that's you know, the last painting she did in this studio it's called prophecy right. and you can see it's wow, a, a, prophecy, a, yeah. a bloated figure with a head wound and a, an evil eye wow. i mean it was titled prophecy she before. didn't title it it was um. titled by alfonso osorio mm-hmm. and he felt very strongly that she should never go back into it that she mm-hmm. should leave it and not try to change it as she did with so many of her other works and he, in fact he felt so strongly about that that he bought it from her right and well he it's gave a kind it of title. journal kind of diary of that time well she said her work was autobiographical if mm-hmm. anyone would take the trouble to read it sure it, it, it's it's difficult to, to read the language of painting mm, most yeah. of us we see but we don't read it yeah. as others would well or we tend to read things into it that aren't there yeah and you make a lot of assumptions, of course, if you know something of the artist's history, like people assume that Pollock's work is explosive, that it is expressing negative emotions because he was so troubled, or that he was drunk when he did it, so it's chaotic. It's neither chaotic nor angry. It's actually mostly very beautiful and lyrical, but there's a kind of an assumption. There's a lot of delicacy. I mean, I see if you take time to read it. Yeah. And I mean, some of them are more explosive um, marks, Mm. but most of them, the marks are very uh, sinuous. Mm. You know, they they flow. And people call them drip paintings, but they really should be called flow paintings because the, the material itself is very viscous. And that's why he chose it, because it's, uh, if you try to thin down artists' oil pigments to get that, that uh, liquidity, they wouldn't be viscous, it would be watery. So the viscosity was very important, and also the color. It's very brilliant, and if you tried to thin down oil colors, they would lose their, their uh, potency. 
So this is the ideal material for him. That's why he chose it. Mm -hmm. People think, oh, cheap house paint. Well, he bought top-of-the-line house paint. It was the most mm -hmm. expensive house paint you could buy, best quality, mm -hmm. and it's held up extremely well. Yeah. Well, let's go out okay. and have a look at the studio, the other studio. We all know Jackson Pollock for his iconic drip painting technique, but few among us can claim as much knowledge about the artist as Helen Harrison. Miss Harrison, director of the Pollock Krasner House and Study Center in Southampton, is a veritable expert on the subjects Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner, American abstract expressionists that revolutionized art history in the mid-20th century. She presents a detailed history of each artist, describing the individual impact of Pollock and Krasner, as well as their influence as a talented and tumultuous married couple. As an art historian, I'm familiar with the disservice done to partners of larger-than-life artists in the history of art. Elaine de Kooning, wife of the ever-famous Willem de Kooning and contemporary of Pollock and Krasner, often suffers a similar fate. But Miss Harrison's dedication to recounting the stories of both the American West star and his Brooklynite partner was delightful and refreshing. In life, Pollock and Krasner were peers, not just a power couple and it is important to remember them as such. Moreover, Miss Harrison presented strong ideas about reforms, such as reinstituting a WPA-like program that benefits artists and the public alike. Her ideas reflect a modern sensibility, but are rooted in tradition and a love of arts. She is an artist and writer herself, after all. She also advocates for arts education, a cause valued by students in the arts everywhere. Ms. Harrison's promotion of cross-disciplinary programs would benefit students in every field. Painters could access a previously unexplored musicality, or playwriters could attempt the fine arts-inspired poetry. When we explore, we grow. Ms. Harrison is an academic, a scholar, a reformist, and a great speaker. I'm eager to bring her information and insight about the Pollock Krasner House to my future studies in art history. from remember the years again? Well he started working in here in 46 and he died in 56 although for the last year or so of his life or maybe even a year and a half he didn't do any painting. He was but doing some sculpture I he believe. He did a yeah. couple of small pieces of sculpture over at Tony Smith's place in New Jersey but uh, they were just really the last gasp yeah. and then Lee took over the studio the barn studio and she worked in here for 27 more years yeah. from 57 her death in 84, although the last couple of years of her life are unproductive because of ill health. The last thing we know she did in here was in 82. Right. But originally the building stood on the concrete foundation that's visible in the lawn. That oh, and was, you moved it, they moved it for the view? Yes, they moved it 
to the side so that they could open up the vista. It was originally a, a, an open field. So you could look right out across the little creek, right out to the harbor. Well, it's certainly magnificent. So you can step right in oh, here. Right. So I need to have special... We'll put this... Oh, you go ahead. on masterpieces here. <laughs> now when they first converted this as a studio, it was really rough. Mm -hmm. There was no heat, there was no electricity, it was just a rough wooden storage barn for fishing equipment. And Pollock worked out here, not in the winter, he couldn't really work un unless it was absolutely necessary. And also, of course, he couldn't work at night because he had no light. Oh, right. But in 1952, he began earning real money. Another of the myths is that he never made any money from his art, but he did. And he came home with a significant amount of money in 52, and he put it into the building. He decided to have it winterized. So he had the insulation put in the walls, covered with the white wallboard, had the floor covered with masonite and painted white, and the fluorescent lights were put in at that time, and also a kerosene stove for heat, which Lee later took out because she was afraid of it. But uh, everything was painted white, and so it was now just a clean white cube instead of what you see in the photograph there, which is the rough wooden structure that was just really to keep the weather off the fishing equipment. Wow. Well, it's amazing that you've You've restored this, and yet you really, it's, it's just faithful, it's, you know, it's It's, it's just exposed. Yeah. When uh, Meg Perlman, who was the first director, was setting it up, it was just a neutral space with some of Lee's marks on the wall. Unfortunately, she actually had it painted over at one time, so it's not as vivid. But they're there, and she decided to make an exhibition that would talk about their lives and their work. And as she was researching it, she found photographs that showed a wooden floor with boards. And what she was looking at was a wooden floor, floor with squares painted white. Mm -hmm. So she pulled one up, and this is what she found underneath. Yeah, it could be looking at, you know, like one of the largest Jackson <laughs> Pollock paintings, unfinished. I mean, well, well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned earlier about fractals. Mm -hmm. When Richard Taylor, who was the physicist who really identified the fractals in Pollock's work for the first time, he was here giving a lecture and he was showing, and he's, he's very good at explaining it in, in layman's terms and not heavily scientific, yeah. but he was showing what a fractal is and how the fractal structure is self-multiplying, self, uh, and he showed images of Pollock's work, and he said, this is fractal, and here's another Pollock, and this is fractal, and here, but here's a real Pollock, and it's not fractal. And we thought, what are you talking about? You've just spent half an hour convincing us that Pollock's work is fractal. It was a detail of the floor, oh. because the floor is completely random. Oh, and that's the difference, that Pollock was making fractals intuitively, Mm -hmm. I mean, fractals weren't even identified until the 1960s by Mandelbrot. Yeah. But the fact that he was doing it without knowing or thinking about it, it just came out naturally. Mm. But what spilled over the edge 
There's no composition, there's no forethought, there's no, no structure to it, it's just completely random. Right, so the patterns, his natural yeah. intuitive pattern making is not there. Quite, it, I mean, I, I see, I can see that's a Pollock, but it's not a Pollock. Right, yeah, you can so. see that, that there are marks that you assume he made because he was working on this floor, but it doesn't add up to a painting. Mm -hmm. It's just a document yeah. of about six years of work from 1946 through 1952. Mm. And after 1952, the Masonite covering was laid down on it and sealed in everything that we have here today. What it also shows you as you look at it for six years of painting and, and a considerable body of work for mm. that period of time, um, for anyone who might claim or feel that it was just random and that actually there would be more paint but you would there's a deliberation mm -hmm, here because mm -hmm. there would be a lot more i yeah. think mm -hmm. if it was just as you were saying it was just thrown, thrown around mm -hmm. thrown around but no mm -hmm. that that shows the care as mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. because it would be a lot more right. if it was just like well that. it's also people think that all of his work was large but it mm -hmm. wasn't the the large yeah, ones are the exceptions because uh, he said it himself, it's impractical. Mm -hmm. How many people want to buy a 16-foot painting? Yeah. And he was living on the sale of his work. Mm -hmm. So most of them are small to medium size, like a typical large one would be uh, four by eight. And here is a, a rectangle into which one of two paintings would have fit. There are several paintings by him on four by eight sheets of masonite, mm -hmm. and two of them have white backgrounds where he has done an undercoat of white and it, so it's one of those two we don't know which one could be either one but some of the colors and gestures are very obvious as related to specific paintings yeah i can kind of see the traces and probably not as well as you would know the echoes of different work but well we've been over it pretty thoroughly <laughs> yeah but over here for example the two big ones that he did just before the floor was covered mm -hmm. he had these colors on a painting called Convergence, which is up oh, in the Albright Knox. Yes, yes. And then Blue Poles was yeah. probably the last one he did. And you can see where he's rested the end of a pole right here on the mm -hmm. floor before he laid it down on the canvas. Wow. And there's another oh, one. Oh, I see, I and see. And another one over yeah. there. There are eight and, um, poles all together. Mm -hmm. But this is a painting that went up on the wall, came down on the floor, went up on the wall again for a long time, Lee said he just had a very hard time getting it to, to gel. Mm -hmm. And then he finally used the poles as a way of kind of anchoring the composition. Wow. And then there was another campaign on top of that. Wow. So there are multiple layers on that one. And in fact, at one point, he evidently got so literally into the picture that he walked across it in his bare feet. Uh. And we've got the footprints oh. over wow. there and some more over there and some more over here. And that's the thing, it's interesting, is he, he did get into the paintings, mm -hmm. and I think that that's how we, we can get into them, that we enter them, he, goes, he approaches it from every angle. Mm -hmm. he, yeah, it, it's so involving, it almost surrounds you. Yeah. Um, Even the smaller ones, when you get up close to them, it all of them have kind of an ideal viewing distance. Some of them, you really want to step back from them and contemplate them, and then others really draw you in. And even ones that are only medium-sized to sort of borderline, well, for example, there's one that's just been conserved at the Los Angeles County Museum, 
Um, oh, sorry, L.A. Mocha. Yeah. It's this one, number one, 1949. And it's not huge, but mm -hmm. it's just, for me, the right size because it's not overwhelming, but it's big enough that as you get close to it, it begins to expand out you know, in your line of vision. And it's just got a lot going on in it, too. It's very colorful. Uh, we didn't really speak about, I'm thinking the women, mm -hmm. women are important in his life, oh, his mother. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking the if we could talk about the positive and or maybe even the women who brought out some destructive elements, you know, as you think well, towards the end. So toward the end, yeah. yes. But his mother was very supportive, yeah. surprisingly so, for a farm wife. Yeah. Who and the family, I mean, they were never destitute, but they certainly struggled. They were very working class. But his mother encouraged all the boys to be creative. Mm -hmm. Five yeah, boys. Charles as well. Charles yeah. was the eldest, and mm -hmm. he's the first one who came to New York to study with Benton. But then Sandy came, Jay came, Jackson came, and uh, Frank stayed in California. He married into a rose growing family. But the other four boys all came east. And it was very unusual when you think about it for, you know, she, if, you, if you would imagine the stereotypical farm wife, she would want the boys all to be doing farm work. Yeah. But she encouraged them to be creative. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he had a couple of female psychiatrists who helped mm -hmm. him very much. And Lee, of course, Peggy, Betty Parsons. Mm -hmm. They were all, they believed in him and they took a chance on him. Right. Now, Ruth Kligman is another story. <laughs> yeah, she seemed to get a different element. Uh, well, you know, people think of him as a womanizer. No, he was not. Uh, in fact, there's a very funny story about when he first met Lee in 1936. They were both uh, in the Artists' Union, which was part of the W, an offshoot of the WPA. And she was at a party with the man she was living with at the time, whose name was Igor. And she and Igor were dancing. She was an excellent dancer, and she loved to dance. And Jackson cut in on her, or cut in on him, I guess, and started dancing with her, and stepped all over her feet and propositioned her. <laughs> well, this is not a ladies' man, you know? Yeah. This is not someone with, with a line, with small talk, no. So anyway, she, she just blew him off. She was not interested. But when she saw his work years later, that was a different story. Right. But it's kind of... Um, I guess, you know, he had this one torrid affair with this much younger woman, and that's been blown up into some kind of Casanova. But it really, you know, that Do you think it was because his career was kind of, not, not his career, but his painting was going through a transition, or some might say stalling? Well, it was stalled. Yeah. yeah, no transition about it. He was not painting. But he did live with her here on the property for nearly a month before he was killed. Right. And then Lee at that time, did she go to, I don't know the details, did she go to Europe to escape it? What was happening? In what a way, yes. Yeah. She was, they were both planning to go. They had passports, they were mm -hmm. planning to go. Paul Jenkins, the artist, had encouraged them because he said, and I, maybe Peggy did too, that uh, Pollock was more respected in Europe than he was here. Right. And he should basically yeah. take a victory lap. But, of course, he wasn't working. Mm. So but that might, might have rejuvenated him. It like, might yeah. have. But on the other hand, people might have said, well, Jackson, what have you done lately? Mm. You know, the art world is not uh, very um, forgiving. Mm. And there was a kind of 
I guess, a he hesitance or a reluctance on his part. But then when he started having the affair, of course, he wanted to stay with the girlfriend. Sure. But Lee decided she would go anyway because her friends kind of advised her. And one of her friends told me, he said to her, you know, if you go and just put some distance between yourself and the situation, then you can decide what to do about it without all that pressure on you. And uh, by the time you get back, it'll all be over. Right. He really said that to her. And he said, of course, I didn't know what it was going to turn out at the time, but the idea that she wouldn't, that Ruth wouldn't be able to stick with him. Mm -hmm. And she almost didn't. She went back to the city. She, was in, she went on a date with someone else while she was in sure. the city. So it was not a marriage made in heaven by any means. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, you know, when she came back and they got in the car and she was with a friend, she brought the friend out for the weekend and the friend is the one who got killed. Mm -hmm. It was just a horrible situation. Right. Horrible for Lee and of course horrible for the two dead people. But it wasn't suicide. You know, people think he, you don't commit suicide in a car with two women in it. You know, mm -hmm. that's not the way it goes. And at that stage, had uh, Jackson alienated him? Uh, how was his relationship with Guggenheim at that stage? Or how was it? Well, there wasn't really a relationship by that yeah. point because although Peggy was still promoting him in Europe, she was no longer his agent or mm -hmm. his uh, controlling uh, the work, the output. Uh, that was Sidney Janis at that point. He was mm -hmm. the one who really did well for him financially. Okay. and got him into good collections and got good money for the work. And then, of course, the year after he died, engineered the sale to the Metropolitan Museum mm -hmm. of Autumn Rhythm for $30,000, okay. which was unprecedented. Mm -hmm. So that was really, uh, Sidney Janis was the one who, who did well for him financially. Mm -hmm. Betty was the one who did the best for him artistically because she gave him the shows of all the master, what we think of now as the masterpieces, but Peggy was the one who jump-started his career mm -hmm. because he had no career before that. Yeah, it's amazing the number of careers that she really, I don't want to say was responsible for, but she identified their mm -hmm. talent mm -hmm. and you know, gave them that. that as we know, that impetus that mm -hmm. some, someone believes in what you're doing, yes. as crazy as it is, is so important. Well, she had to make the market. Yeah. You see, you know, after the war, when we started to be, when it started to be a commercial art world again. She risked a lot. Well, yeah. she was, of course, she had her inheritance, yeah, but she was risking, mm, I suppose more it was a, a kind of a psychic risk because mm -hmm. she had to get people to believe in what she was believing in. But there were some very savvy collectors, people who already were in collecting European art, collecting like even her uncle Solomon right. was collecting in the same area as she was. So there wasn't, uh, it wasn't like it was an unknown quantity, mm -hmm. but the Americans were not known. The Americans yeah. were not taken seriously. So for them to make that breakthrough, for someone like Michel Tapier to write to Pollock and a fan letter in 1950, I mean, that was unprecedented. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the uh, Peggy salted her collection around in different European galleries or museums and then showed Pollock's work in Venice and, and it traveled to Rome and then he had the show in Paris in 51 that Alfonso arranged. All these things helped to give him an international reputation instead of just a regional or a local one. Sure. So it was very, it was, he had some important supporters, male and female, and the few early collectors who took a, took a chance. 
So there, that was kind of um, a groundswell that, of course, even during his lifetime was beginning to build. But it wasn't really until after he died and Lee so shrewdly handled his estate wow. that uh, you know things really picked up. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, and it happens time and again, that artists don't see the culmination of mm -hmm. the, their work, you know, their reception, their work, and that they had, you know, hung on a little bit more. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, it's tragic, but... Well, of course, some of them lived very long lives. I mean, mm -hmm. de Kooning lived into his 90s, mm -hmm. and Matisse and, and Picasso, you think of these people who had very long and, and very distinguished careers, and some die very young for whatever reason, whether it's disease or an accident or suicide, you know, who's, who's to say? But there's a kind of myth that the artist has to die in order yeah. to get famous. Yeah, I don't and believe of course, that's that. not, it's definitely not true. <laughs> I want to promote the fact that it's hard work, mm -hmm. that it's discipline. That well, it's, on the yeah, flip side friendship. of that, yeah. no matter how good you are, no matter how uh, high your reputation is when you were alive, you can be forgotten after your death. Yeah. If the estate isn't managed properly. Sure. And that was what Lee was so good at, was she understood how the art world worked, and she was able to capitalize on that because she was devoted to him, for one thing. She thought he was a genius, and she believed in him, but also because she understood what needed to be done. So as you, I mean, you've devoting your life here to the Pollock, Krasner, you've been at Guildhall, the artists that you've known personally, living artists, and those that you have known through study of their work. I mean, what, what have you learned about creativity, about artists, about, you know, what drew you to art? And well, I, I started as an artist. Yes. I went to art school. I, I studied art in college. I had studio, I specialized in sculpture, but I also did painting and printmaking mm -hmm. and ceramics and all the other things you do as an undergraduate. Then I went on for graduate work in sculpture at the Brooklyn Museum Art School and at Hornsey College of Art in London. And uh, I met my husband at the Brooklyn Museum. <laughs> he, we married in 67, and then I went to uh, live in England for a while and practice as a sculptor. So I did have a background of my own creative expression. And when I started studying the WPA, which was my scholarly specialty, I went back to graduate school to do that, some of my teachers had been on it and told me about it. And so I, I related to them on a personal level and a professional level. And the artists, we're talking 40 years ago, they were still alive. So you could call them up or go visit them and talk to them about it. And you know, I was very comfortable with artists because I was one. Right, that is so important. Yeah. Well, a lot of graduate students in art history, I don't think they really relate that well to the artists mm. uh, on a personal level. Right. And they often don't really know the techniques from having done them. Mm. I think it's wonderful when, when graduate students also take studio art right. so that they can get a sense of what's involved in actually making something. It's not that easy. It's not an object. Yeah. As you said, you were able to identify the layers, yeah. the time, the Well, it's also gestation. not just something that you study. It's something that was physically made by a human being. Mm -hmm. And those people, you know, they put a lot of themselves into it. Mm -hmm. So for me, uh, that was a natural, natural thing. It didn't bother me at all. Sure. And I would be kind of appalled when some of my students would say, oh, you talk to the artist? Like, you know, 
what, what, what could you possibly learn from them that I'm not learning from my theoretical ideas? And it's like, give me a break. You know? Yeah, and get back, yeah. yeah. Let's get real here. But I think more students do actually do both now, which yeah. I'm glad of. But there's a kind of um, sympathy, I guess, that I got from that. And also, you just I guess, the ability to look at art for what it is, not, it, not the theoretical side of it, but just, just to appreciate it for what it is. Of course, I'd like to know what the artist was trying to accomplish, if there is a, a meaning uh, on that level. But I'm more interested in the visceral response, the actual engagement with the work itself. And, it, you know, I, I have pretty Catholic tastes. I like abstract art, I like figurative art too. But I don't feel like I have to choose. I can respond to whatever I feel engaged with, right. rather than having to dismiss a whole body of work and you know just sort of. We don't have to take know. sides. Yeah, no. I, I don't feel I have to decide. And mm -hmm. I worked for 28 years as an art critic for the New York Times, yeah. so of course, yeah, I got used to expressing my opinion, <laughs> which is what I was paid to do. Yeah. But I never put it out as the be-all or the end-all. Is it a relief not to have to do the reviewing? Because I would find that very hard. <laughs> I love art, but I would find it hard to be making my name <laughs> or doing that. How, did you find that difficult as a No, not really, because I do have very broad taste. Mm -hmm. So I would try to evaluate each thing on its own merits. Mm -hmm. And of course, I tended not to write about the things that I thought were really bad. Yeah, I because just don't interview people I'm not interested in. Well, yeah. <laughs> why would I w waste my readers' time uh -huh. don't, uh, telling them not to go to this exhibition? You yeah. know, it's just a waste of time. And there was so much, there mm -hmm. was so much to choose from Did, yeah. that I, I could choose the things. The only time that I would really be, I would say, negative mm -hmm. is if it was a public institution that was doing it wrong, mm -hmm. like a museum that presents right. a show that's badly done because, or, or an art gallery that is skewing things in the wrong way because that is a different, it's a different category. Right, it's a public service that you're saying, you, you know. You say, look, this isn't. You this, could do better. Yeah, this is, this is not a representative, it's, they're calling it a retro retrospective, it's not. Because right. old bodies of work are missing or something. I actually wrote about the Hockney. I, I still write a column once yeah. a month for the uh, Sag Harbor Express. Oh. And I reviewed the Hockney show at the Met. Right. I know Hockney's work pretty well. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot that was left out. It mm -hmm. was not a retrospective. Okay. So I had to say that. Given that, you know, there's a lot of great work in it. It's just, it's not as, as advertised. So that's the kind of thing that I would be more critical of. Whereas individual artists, I would tend to say, this is, maybe this isn't their best work. I, I wouldn't rip them to shreds because sure. it's you a waste of- You know how hard it is. I too. know how hard it is. And also it's a waste of time because I don't, I don't want to tell people not to go see things. Right. I want to steer them toward things that are worth seeing. And as you look back, I mean, you've, um, you've, you've studied the work, you've been involved with the work of you know, some of the 20th century masters, um, you know. Um, do you think this is an educational initiative? And so part of it is that we try to look at ways where we could be encouraging creativity, celebrating the arts. What could, what could we be doing to 
you know, are we doing enough to create the Pollocks of tomorrow? Mm. How could we be encouraging creativity, better integrating it within our school system, not just the study of the arts, but the science? Well, well. <laughs> yeah. for my money, we could have the WPA again right. and actually pay the, pay the artists to do their work yeah. and give it to public buildings. And then we would have art all around us and the artists would be able to make a decent wage, mm -hmm. and they would be contributing to society, and then yeah. society could appreciate what they're, what they're contributing. Mm -hmm. But I know that's not going to happen, certainly well, in this well, political climate. If, if, I, if I can you know, be whispering, and you know, I, did, mm -hmm. I have some ears I could whisper into, I, I would love to encourage that, because I think that you've seen you know, the evolution of you know, contemporary art is that, that art has always had a kind of you know, benefactors and had a commercial oh, element, sure. but where it's not for the people. Right. The artist makes it, mm. feeling it's for the people, mm. but ultimately mm -hmm. it goes into the collections mm. of... Well, if you are yeah. doing it for the money, which of course most people are, yeah, you have changed. to think about the market. Yeah. Now, back in the old days, you would have the church or the Medici or whoever mm -hmm. was supporting it. A different kind of patronage. Though, well, there, yeah. is, there is still patronage. There's mm -hmm. still uh, the government patronage. In fact, you can. Uh, my husband has done several public art projects mm -hmm. for the Ma Metropolitan Transportation Authority, for oh, nice. the uh, MTA out in Los Angeles. Oh. So you can uh, compete for those jobs. There is a lot of public art around, mm -hmm. but the idea of just doing your work in your studio and then where does it go from there? Does it go into a public building? Does it go out to a school or a library or a hospital? Or does it go into the gallery who sells it to a private collector? And then maybe somewhere down the road, the collector will donate it to a museum. Mm -hmm. It's a little closed system. Yeah. Whereas you know, under a program like the WPA, it was intended specifically for public buildings. Right, and it was a, a social. I mean, I like the social messaging. Mm. It does seem like you know that's what we forget about the arts as it's been cut down under this current administration. Um, the the arts are a vehicle for bringing people together. Mm -hmm. There's a collectivity, even as the artist may work in solitude in their mm -hmm. studio. Um, it starts discussions, and I, that's what was so beautiful about that program, which I mm. think is a great idea to bring back. Well, of course, it was it was uh, intended to alleviate unemployment. I mean, yeah. that was what it was for, and it just happened that the artists were brought in under the umbrella, mm -hmm. which was the enlightened part of it. The other part yeah. of it was construction jobs and uh, yeah. you know things that, that that people were trained for. That was the purpose mm -hmm. was not to have to retrain them but to mm -hmm. give them jobs that, that use their existing skills. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's gonna happen again because we don't have the unemployment problem, for mm -hmm. one thing, but also because you don't need, well, now there are so many other media of communication mm -hmm. that artists, even if they're working in, so in solitude, they can get the, the word out much more effectively because of social media and the internet. But one thing that I do find and I would like to celebrate is that I, re well the way I, I think the way a lot of artists learn is that they learn better. But I think a lot of people even who aren't, don't classify themselves as artists or writers, um, they learn better when they're making something. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so much about education 
it might not be exactly passive, oh, we're doing papers, whatever, but it's not this sense of making and remembering mm. the long-term memory. And so I really would love to see it more incorporated into our educational system because, I mean, even through these interviews, I, I read an enormous amount before, but when I'm doing the interviews, I learn and I remember. Mm. And this sense of when you make something, right. you put something out into the world that's not just... Mm. A paper that you won't see, you yeah. know. Well, a lot of people do creative things mm -hmm. uh, at home. Yeah. Uh, they do crafts, they do mm -hmm. photography, they do things that they can do uh, just for their families, just mm -hmm. for themselves. It doesn't have to be part of the commercial art world. Yeah. And if they want to get the word out, they put it on Facebook, you know. But, yeah. but, but they are nice. still doing it themselves. It is something that gives them a kind of fulfillment. Yeah. And I don't think the medium itself is that important. I think the importance is being invested in it yeah. and feeling that you're doing something that's not just rote learning or repetitious or yeah. um, doesn't have, uh, I guess, part of you in it. Right. You know, can people, can, people with remarkably little resources can actually create some pretty ter terrific things yeah. as long as they're inspired. And here, just finally, here in the community, there's a great history. Mm. Um, you know, East Hampton, the Hamptons, generally, as you know, collaborating with uh, Cy Carver, Eric Fischel, April Gornick, and they're, they're trying to bring back and celebrate, um, particularly Cy Carver, but in different areas of the Hamptons, um, they had a maker culture where mm -hmm. they were making um, parts for the moon landing, mm -hmm. um, you know. The, the whaling tradition, all mm. these things, and trying to bring that back because the Hamptons in the, uh, how many years since uh, the Pollock and Krasner were here has become a very wealthy region where we're soon the artists will not, well, mm -hmm. many artists mm -hmm. can't afford yeah. To, yeah. to make. Oh, they were complaining about that yeah. back in the 60s, but uh, but it's gotten more so. It has, mm. and and so I, I, I like to be a part of that, and so I, what, what, what do you think about the, some of the, these, these initiatives that we're involved Well, the, the initiatives are great. I yeah. mean, you've got the Watermill Center. Yes, the Watermill. I'm interviewing Robert yeah, as well, yeah. And Guild Hall yeah. and, and uh, Eric and April. And, and you know, sometimes it does take just an individual or a couple like Eric and April to say, oh, let's do this, you know, and mm -hmm. then it can happen. But it's, when it's incorporated within an institution, you feel like it maybe has more viability because you have the institutional resources behind it. But then look at what Bob Wilson has created virtually out of nothing. I mean, he was a street artist, you know, and he's got this international empire going. So yeah. it's uh, the kind of, uh, it's, it's almost magic, really. Mm. But the uh, area has this critical mass of creative people in all disciplines. Yeah, you've got special. you've got the poets, you've got the playwrights, you've got the visual artists, you've got conceptual artists, mm -hmm. the choreographers, the, the museum people. I mean, it's a huge resource, and yeah. I, I hope that Stony Brook will take more and more advantage of it because with the Southampton campus, so much more could go. They have a wonderful writers program there yeah, that's just, just amazing. I'm interviewing Susan Merrill tomorrow. Uh -huh. We're include, we've already done other. So I, I'd like to see a visual art component of that as well, mm -hmm. because there's there's just it's such an attraction. I, I think I think it's good. I mean, I, I love I applaud what they're doing for the the writing, but let's complement that because yeah. they can oh, art forms learn from each other. That's Indeed, what I they know. do. They do, and it, it's actually helpful for them to 
Mm-hmm. I love you know going out of my league, mm-hmm. coming back in. Well, you know, you know, people come here and they get inspired, and we're not just talking about painters, although we do have people who set their easels up on the lawn. Oh, but I we have had a choreographer know. working here. I was wondering. Yeah, we had a sound yeah. artist. We wow. had a conceptual artist here. Wow. Uh, we've had other people, uh, who, writers, of course, Ed Harris, and you know he yeah. he did a lot of research here for for the script. He worked very hard on that all different aspects of the film. Mm-hmm. But we've had playwrights. Mm-hmm. Oh, all people in all disciplines. It's, a, it's just beautiful. And, and it's, oh, it is so inspiring to vi- visit houses, to visit spaces where artists or writers have worked. It, well, there's we, an energy. We have remains. a whole group, the uh, Historic Artists Homes and Studios uh, mm-hmm. program of the National Trust, which does, uh, we have over 30, I think we have 36 now. We're going to soon have 40. And uh, we, uh, all of us are, you know, in it together, as it were. Wow. But uh, each one is different. Each one has a different program. And that's just in the Hamptons? No, it's all over the country. Oh, oh beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I really learned so much about both their lives. Mm. And just being here is inspiring. So, yeah, well, um, see, we, when we interpret the studio, of course, the floor is the main attraction. People yeah. just, you know, glom onto the floor. Mm-hmm. But we try also to uh, emphasize the fact that Lee worked here almost three times as long as Jackson did. Yeah. And her energy is definitely still here, all over mm-hmm. the walls. So there's a kind of, it's unusual to have two artists represented in the same space because usually when the second artist or another artist moves in, they obliterate what was there before. Mm-hmm. But because the floor was covered, we have both. No, it's very nice. It's kind of like a chapel to art, <laughs> in you know, in a real sense. I've been to other chapels designed mm-hmm. by artists, but it is a real. That's what it feels like to me. Well, you know, this is this it's is where it, where it actually happened. Yeah. And that's true of many of the other spaces as well. The actual studios yeah. are preserved and interpreted. And sometimes they're sanitized. I just don't get that sense. I still feel the nature. I still feel like like it feels like a spa- a working space and mm-hmm. so nice. Well, thank you so much, Helen, um, for... Well, it was a pleasure meeting you, yes, Mia. Yes, I think, you know, no, just for just sharing their stories and your own um, insights about creativity. It's, thank, thanks so much for adding your You're voice very to the welcome. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Emma Vion. Assignment Editor is Sorella Lark. Digital Media Coordinator is Camille Montalino. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, Traveling to Leading Universities, or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.